You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of NFC, the old Nine Finger Chronicles. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we have returning guest, and he might be up there with Justin Czar now for the most appearances as a guest on the Nine Finger Chronicles. Uh, Tony Peterson is the guest today, and man, we have... Let me pull something up here real quick on my computer. I'm going <laughs> to... This is crazy, right? I like to think outside of the box, and it's just like, Dan, the, the title of this episode is Dan Comes Out to Tony Peterson, and <laughs> obviously, it's not what you think it is, but in today's episode, uh, I'm not going to talk about the, the first part of it, because I want it to be a surprise about what I come out to Tony Peterson about (laughs) so it's uh it's funny I I thought it was hilarious it's a a good introduction into our conversation today but man we have um we have a we have a fun conversation about that we also have a uh, conversation about uh specific rules and regulations I don't mean to to bring up the crossbow uh, conversation again and, and beat it down again but we do talk about crossbows we talk about some other rules and regulations within um the United States we talk about uh, late season, the late season hunting, and then we we talk about uh, one of the other conversations that we have in today's episode is about storytelling, and what stories are better than others, right? So like, is a if if you if someone tells you this amazing story, but then they end it with then I shot him with a gun, versus I shot him with a, a bow, is one story better than the other? And so, uh, me and Tony get into, a, basically, this episode is just a fun BS session again. Uh, love having Tony on. Uh, I can say I can relate to him in many ways, <laughs> uh, not only in, not only just in age and in culture, but in, uh, the, the, I guess, the approach we take to 
too haunting. But uh, fun, fun episode today. Uh, real quick, I'm just going to go through the old Nine Finger Chronicles partners, and then we'll get right into today's episode. If you're looking for a saddle, you got to go check out Tethered Man. Uh, this year, I did a hybrid where uh, I did a little bit of tree stand hunting, but I, I ditched my tree harness and I started bringing a saddle everywhere I went. So I, so on the days that I did sit in a tree stand, I could sit down, I could stand up, I could also hang off the tree. Uh, and it's just like, for me, one of the reasons why I don't hunt all day is because I can't stand sitting in the same position for that period of time. But what allows me to stay longer is when I have a hybrid method, like the tree stand I can stand, I can sit, or I can hang, and it just gets me in a different position, looking at new angles and and thinking about new things. And so, uh, tetherednation.com, go check it out. Uh, last week, we we did Wasp Week. So if you're looking for a badass broadhead, most of their heads are still made in America. Amazing design, a hardcore, durable material, and it just makes for a really killer broadhead. Uh, wasparchery.com. Go check out their mechanical and fixed blade options. Uh, uh, discount code NFC20 for 20% off. And next is Vortex Optics. You know, you've heard me talk about Vortex a million times on this podcast. And uh, a good Christmas gift for your kids is they have a new youth binocular that's, it was designed and created with the same quality as all of their other binoculars uh, style of uh, binocular for kids. And I really think that that would be an awesome Christmas gift for a future hunter, a future outdoorsman, because what's one of the most important things in anybody's gear list? And in my opinion, it's optics. So vortexoptics.com, go check that out. Code Blue Sense, between now and Christmas, these guys run are going to be running some uh, additional discounts, I, I believe, along with all everybody I mentioned today. But Code Blue Sense, man, uh, huge fan of the old rope-a-dope. And the rope-a-dope system and the preorbital gland that they uh, that comes with that, man, deer just come to investigate it. Whether they lay a scrape underneath it or not, it's something in the woods that they can smell and they go investigate it. And if I, you put a trail camera in front front of it, you get inventory of every deer that is on your farm. Period. And so, uh, huge fan of the that that system, along with. You know, if you are the type of person who likes to spray down with scent elimination spray, they have uh, other scent elimination products like laundry detergent wipes, body soap, and then, of course, their real and synthetic deer urines and deer scents. So go check out CodeBlueScents.com. Woodman's Pal, another awesome Christmas gift here that you sh- that any outdoorsman should have in their garage or in their truck or just any outdoorsman, period. So uh, go check out uh, woodmanspal.com. It is a habitat tool. It's like a machete. It's durable. It's made in America. This company's been around since the 1940s, and uh, and so if you've been along that long, been around that long, you're doing something right. So go check out woodmanspal.com. Last but not least, well, there's two more. Huntworth, uh, man. In my opinion, this camel company, this uh, hunting clothing company, has one of the best layering systems in all of the hunting industry and i say that after 
I, I say that as someone who's already worn the elite brands, right? The other brands that we all know, the top end, the very expensive ones, these guys have very, very, very similar quality, but they're more affordable and uh, there's there's equal options, man. And so I really think everybody needs to go to huntworthgear.com, check out all of their uh, early, mid, and late season options, as well as their Instagram and their Facebook lineup, because these guys are dropping discount codes all the time that you should be able to take advantage of. So uh, last but not least, I just, dude, last week, if you, if you are a regular listener on the show, I just got another... Pull it up real quick. Uh, I just got another uh, T-shirt design for Full Sneak Gear in the mail, or in the mail uh, through email, and it is badass, dude. So I think I told uh, some some people this already, but I went to the internet searching for companies that did design work for death metal albums because I had this idea that I want a zombie-looking whitetail on a T-shirt. And so I found a company in Eastern Europe, like Hungary or whatever. I think they're from Hungary uh, or some Eastern Europe, European, like Czech Republic or something like that. Anyway, these guys, all they do is create albums album covers and t-shirts for hardcore death metal bands and hardcore rock and roll bands and I had them create me a t-shirt design and this thing looks ridiculous it is a whitetail buck in a forest with like human skulls and uh, the 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 whitetail buck is like decomposing and but he's standing it's like a zombie uh, like w- the walking dead right and so uh, i cannot wait to share that on fullsneakgear.com it's just completely out of the box and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy it and it's something different that we that i think we could all wear the name of that t-shirt is going to be the full sneak slayer and so uh go out and uh keep, uh keep an eye out for that one along with all the other products that we offer at fullsneakgear.com all right that's it dude I'm jacked for everybody, man. I, I don't know why I just got this big pump of energy today. I'm so happy that I'm alive. I'm so happy that my family and my kids are healthy. Uh, I'm able to live in a neighborhood with, you know, great people as neighbors. It, you, I watch the news every day, and it's just sh- it's a shit show everywhere else. So I'm so happy to be American, born in America, and, and you know, living in a place where bombs are literally not dropping on my head every day. And so, uh, man, I love this country. I, I, I love my family. I don't know why I'm saying all this, but I'm trying to spread positive energy. I'm sending good vibes out to you. So good vibes coming your way, especially with this episode. So let's get into today's episode with my man, Tony Peterson. Three, two, one. Tony Peterson, how are you? I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Uh, let's see here. First crazy question, and I know this is a, this is going to sound weird coming from a hunting podcast, but we've already covered weird, um, you and I, so it's just going to be par for the course. Have you had a friend or relative 
or anybody that you knew or maybe confided in you uh, come out of the closet to you? Uh, man, I have a story I really want to tell from my college days. Okay. And I don't really know if I should or not. Okay. Uh, if, if you want to say pass, you, we can pass. I had a random coworker in college one time come out of the closet to me who I had just met. Yep. And, uh. God, how do I put this? <laughs> he had nobody else to go to, and you were the closest it, person. It's no. In my college days, I did a lot of things that I wouldn't want my kids to do as far as substances and such. Okay, okay. And I was, I was partying pretty hard with a group of people who had uh, some substances that you – that make you think things that maybe aren't true okay. or make you see things that maybe aren't true. Okay. And it was during one of those nights that this dude who I just met, who just started working with all of us confided in me that, and let me tell you something, man, that makes your brain think a lot of weird thoughts. Like, why is this stranger telling me this right now? Am I giving off these weird vibes? What's going on? And so that was my experience my entirety of my experience with that and it was uh very weird yeah yeah uh i've been there dude i've been there uh not necessarily having anybody come out to me and i'll get to the point here in a second but i did one time you know and we've all changed uh since 20 you know 20 25 years ago when i was in college at least i hope i've changed um there was one day where we got so high I accidentally ordered 25 pizzas from Papa John's and it took two cars to come. And I, and I was like, uh, when it got here, I had a $20 bill <laughs> and that's, and I was just like, uh, here, you take this, I'll take the top one. And then I just slowly shut the door right in their face. And then, uh, and then I could remember <laughs> later that night, we watched a a kitchen clock on a stove and every time a minute would change we would have this blowout celebration <laughs> because like, time was just crawling <gasps> yeah oh it was nuts and so uh <laughs> so yeah anyway i need to come Those out poor pizza delivery i know right they get also i sh I, I have to ask you did you ask me this because Mark confided in you or something? <laughs> no, no. We're going there. Oh, okay. We're going there. Know. No, no, he hasn't done that yet. Um, the reason I say this is because I need to come out to you about something. Oh, my and God. I, right. I'm, I'm going to do it right here, right now, because I, I feel like it's my job as a content creator to share how I'm feeling with you and all of the people who have confided in me and uh, allowed me to come into their ears uh, every, you know, every week. And so I take pride in being a bow hunter. Okay. I, I bought a muzzle loader, dude. And I, I don't know how I feel about it. I bought a muzzle loader. And so that's really me coming out and saying, I'm just not a bow hunter anymore, man. I'm going to, 
I'm going to slowly transition into a gun hunter too. And it, it feels good to say it out loud now. Man, I, I, I feel like a lot has changed in the last 25 years too. And I fully support your transition into a muzzleloader hunter. Dude, you know, a big weight's come off my chest now, dude. I feel like I felt like I was going to get rejected by the audience and after you said that dude i feel really good about myself now i feel like i can accomplish anything well let me tell you something last weekend was the muzzleloader opener in minnesota okay and i i hunted yep and i had the most fun i've had deer hunting all season yeah in those two days and i'm going back tomorrow i'm gonna bring one of the one of my dogs down i'm gonna pheasant hunt some but i'm also gonna muzzleloader hunt some because it's just so damn fun yeah. after a season of carrying a bow around. And, you know, for us, it's a little bit different, too, because you might have a cameraman sitting over your shoulder or whatever mm -hmm. for a lot of your hunts. And, dude, I'll tell you what. I had I, – I went down – I went and hunted some of this public land in western Minnesota that I've been like, I got to try to figure this out. And I went down there, and I – I was covered in hunters, yep. but I also was covered in deer, and I had so much fun. And a, and a huge reason is because I didn't have to bow hunt those yeah. deer. Yeah. So fun. You can get a little bit outside of that bubble. Uh, dude, I got way outside the bubble. <laughs> I was, I was, I, in fact, I mean, we can talk about this if you want, but we, I had fresh snow, just a little bit of fresh snow on Sunday morning. Yeah. And my plan to ambush them did not work. Mm -hmm. I didn't see any deer. I spooked a bunch. I could hear them in the dark. And so with the fresh snow, I'm like, where did all the deer I was on go? Because I knew they were going to bed in these cattails and this uh, kind of dogwood patches and willows. And so I went looking mm -hmm. and I got on seven different fresh tracks of deer and I jumped seven deer within 30 yards of me following those around and had, I had the, my sights, my scope on three different bucks that morning that were all bedded and let me get super close and I never got a shot. Yeah, that's awesome. And it was but dude, it was I what happened is when I got on the first track, I was just kind of like I got to go see where these deer how, how did they get back to this bedding area cuz it's wide open down there. Right. And you know, Saturday morning I got to this vantage point, and I saw 14 deer generally work into this cover. And then Sunday morning, I saw zero deer go yeah. in there. So I knew it was me. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm just going to go. It's kind of like a free play. I'm not going to hunt here tonight. I got to drive home. And I got in there and got on the first set of doe tracks. And I'm like, I'm, I didn't have a doe tag, but I'm like, I'm just going to follow it and see where this goes because they're fresh. Yeah. And she got up out of her bed 15 yards away from me after like five minutes of trailing her. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is what I'm going to do for the next several hours. And then I got on a buck track. And the difference between where he traveled, how he stayed in the cover, and then how I jumped him. And he was really nice for that area. He was probably 120, 125 inches, got up right next to me. Yeah. And I couldn't get a shot at him. Just, it was so freaking fun. It was such a learning experience. And I did that seven times yeah. and got close to seven deer. That's awesome, man. I got to tell you this layout, okay? So... Last year was my first year hunting this new farm, and it's in, fortunately for me, primo Iowa ground, right? This south of Des Moines, Iowa, it is just a spectacular piece with a real high age class, which means big antlers, 
right? And good genetics. And so the the cool thing about this property, if I haven't said it already, is it's like a mile and a half by two miles rectangle that there's no roads go through, all right? And this farm is in the dead center. So all of the terrain comes right down into this property that I was the first hunter period last year, three years ago. And the only other hunter that hunted it previously was the landowner's cousin. And he was a a, a shotgun season hunter only. And he would sit in a little cabin that's out there. And I'm guessing he shot from his uh the front of this cabin and he just basically it was hey i'm gonna go relax for a, yeah. for a week or whatever okay all the neighbors are non-residents most of the neighbor uh, neighbors are non-resident landowners okay and so one day i called this landowner up uh, and he basically told me i'm disappointed that someone's hunting there now because of this layout right he he keeps about 10 acres of standing crops, whether it's corn uh, or beans, and then he bush hogs it right before uh, the season starts, and it's just this destination food source late season. I mean, it's just, um, you, you imagine finding a place on public that borders a standing cornfield, and you're just going to see 50, 60 deer a night, right? So that's what happened last year. I didn't have a muzzleloader last year. And so I talked... This guy, he has his box blind right over top of this, right? So he's going to come here late season, right? He can't get a tag, uh, archery tag every year. He's going to come here late season, and he's going to uh, try to shoot a deer right off. That, that comes out of my property that I have access to to feed on his. The issue for him is this year I'm going to be between him and that deer. And so... I know he's going to be there the same time that I'm there. I just like, I can see him getting pissed off the guy getting yeah. pissed off because when I called him, he's like, I saw your, uh, I saw you have a trail camera, uh, right on the fence line. And it se- it seemed to bother him. And I'm like, yep, it is. It's right on the fence line, but you know, uh, it just takes pictures of deer. He's like, Oh, okay. Like, Hey, you're too close. You know, you're too yeah. close to me, but he's just pissed that now there's someone hunting that property. And he st- then kind of another caveat here. He starts telling me, hey, man, I only try to take deer in the 160s and higher. And then I start asking him questions and stuff. And then he tells me, well, I also let my buddies from out of state hunt when they draw their archery tags. And I tell them 140s. So it doesn't it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. He's like like he's trying to tell me maybe you should stick to 160s. Well, tell your buddies to stick to 160s. You know what I mean? Do, do you think, are you getting a little bit of a cheater vibe out of this dude? Is that is that why he's gatekeeping this so hard? Or is it just a, he just doesn't want anybody else hunting there? Well, I think what's happened is that he, he had a primo bedding area that for years, late season for years, would just, all the deer after the crops are out, funnel right down into this property and they just pile into this standing food plot that he's created standing egg and he's frustrated now that he might have to change his strategy up a little bit because what it's worked for 10, however many years he's owned this property. And now they're, I don't want to even say it's competition because we're not even on the same property. It's just, 
I'm lucky that I get access to the property that the deer are on and have to step out before they cross the fence into his. So if I'm, let's just put this into in a scenario. The buck that I shot earlier that I didn't kill in November pops up. I'm going to be able to watch this deer come out of the woods, prayed by me at under 100 yards, and I'm going to shoot this deer probably 40 to 20 yards from this fence line with a guy in the box blind right there wait, you know, waiting. And so it's kind of like a tough shit type moment for this guy. Yeah, I mean, isn't it? I mean, that's that just is what it is. Yeah. But isn't it weird that that's legal? But if you took, you know, I mean, as far as like bush hogging that, that cornfield or that bean field, that's legal, mm -hmm. but not carrying out yeah. 250 pounds of corn and just dumping it on the ground. Yeah. Uh, dude, I've been thinking about so many things like that recently about like my thoughts on baiting, my thoughts on crossbows. My thoughts on different weapons throughout the year, tag allocations, how, like who can get what and when. And it's just, it's just weird. Like, I don't even have a real answer because I, you know, you think about things and you don't have a, a set opinion. But some of those things, because I, I, I had a, a podcast earlier this week about baiting. Uh, or well, I, it's not about baiting. It was about a, a guy from Ohio that he didn't kill his buck over bait, but he had bait piles on that property in order to get pictures of deer. And so in Iowa, man, you you can have food out. You just can't hunt over it or anywhere close yeah. to it. Yeah, don't you have to be like a hundred yards away or something? Well, see, there's no in Nebraska. It says. You have to hunt 200 yards away from a bait pile. So that's a, a black and white, cut and dry, right? In Iowa, there's no, there's no law that says you have to be this distance away from a, a bait pile or mineral lick, mineral station. Uh, well, how do they, I mean, how do they bust somebody then if you just hunt a trail leading to the bait or what? Yep, it's, it's, oh. it's officer discretion. I mean, I, I know it's so weird. I just, I look at that and I go, I mean, how, how, how easy do we need to make it? Right. And I know there, I know everybody draws their own lines, you know, like I'm not out there making my own self bows and shooting them with like, I, I, I get, I get that everybody views it differently, but I, I don't understand why we have like ambiguous baiting laws like that. Like yeah. why I, I don't understand why it's just not cut and dry, especially right. in a state like Iowa. I mean, I don't know, man. Like, it's literally the best state in the country to hunt yep. whitetails. Yep. You know, and and then to have that going on, it's just it's just weird to me that yep. they haven't like drawn that line. Yep. Yeah. Not only have they not drawn the line, but okay, so kind of shift, just slight shift here about rules and regulations. You know. Um, Minnesota, all these, all these states, right? They have, from a, a political standpoint, they have lobbyists that try to come in. They say, hey, we'll donate to your whatever, your uh, campaign, if you vote for this law that once. So right now the big thing is crossbows. And I've, I've beat this horse to death on this podcast. My, my thought about all of these new rules and regulations that seem to get brought up 
every hunting se- every every year is Iowa, like you said, is one of, if not the best deer hunting state in the country. And it's that way for a reason. I strongly believe it's because of the rules and regulations that we have and and, and how we allocate tags is what makes it the greatest uh, state to, to do that. Now, we don't have the population like Minnesota or Wisconsin or... Um, or uh, Michigan or Pennsylvania, right? We don't have that. That's a big check or a plus for us. But outside of that, the rules and regulations, man, they're pretty. They're really good, especially for residents. Well, not not only that, but you're just – Iowa's just a sweet spot where you're not going to get winter kill hardly ever. Yep. You know what I mean? It would be like a really rare thing for your deer herd to get knocked back. Amazing, you know, amazing soil to produce the right food like the right climate it's got it's there there's so much going on and they have done a really good job of just like we're gonna we're we see what we have and we're gonna protect it yep so it's always it's always weird to me when i see something like that where you know you could go put out five thousand pounds of corn in a certain spot and as long as you aren't hunting like you could get away with hunting deer around that somehow or like relating to it somehow but not be illegal it's like just so crazy and yeah it, i'll tell you what man the crossbow thing you can fight that all you want i just it's like the freight trains coming man like yeah. we got it in minnesota this year you know but it's always I, I don't know where iowa stands like as far as uh do they do they allow anyone to use it other than a medical exemption it's not youth during the youth season uh-huh. okay um elderly i think it's over 55 or 60 okay uh and then uh, obviously disabled, uh, whether that's mental or bad shoulder or things like that. And then late season. So late, our late season, our, our late muzzleloader season is considered a primitive weapon season. So I can use my bow, you can use a crossbow, and you can use a muzzleloader, right? And and now even our shotgun, our shotgun season in Iowa is now straight wall cartridges, rifles, and, and it's slowly going to be going to a rifle season because every year. Sure. Yeah. Here's the cool thing. The Iowa Bow Hunters Association now has got enough funding to where we are now hiring lobbyists of our own to fight the lobbyists. So now we're on the approach to take the offensive against that freight train that you're talking about. And every year, these rules and regulations come up. They try again. We have the right people in the right places to identify them. And then we we all go to, you know, hey, do not do this to our, our politicians. And so it's held off so far. Um, but now within the next, I think with, by between now and the time the Iowa Deer Classic hits, we're going to, uh, residents in Iowa are going to start hearing a lot more about the offensive that we're going to be taking to put a, put the brakes on on some of these things and, and make what, what's that called when um uh let, let's say i i approach the government and i say or i lobby the government and i'm trying to change the law but then there's a law that says okay this has been shut down and we're we're not going to address this issue for another 10 years there's a term for that and that's what our goal is with that is to 
is to be like, okay, we've beat this 10 years in a row. It's going to be another 10 years until you can even bring it up now. Um, why, like a moratorium, yeah, why yeah. do you, do you think that the average, uh, just the average hunter in Iowa, deer hunter, mm -hmm. do you think they're opposed to crossbows? So here's the thing is I, I, I don't want to say the average deer hunter is opposed to crossbows. It's, but it's not the Iowa residents who are bringing, it's not me and the rest of the Iowa residents saying, hey, we demand a, bow, a, a crossbow during archery season. We want to use it. It's not coming from us. It's coming from uh, a crossbow company that's hiring lobbyists to do that for them because they see uh, a dollar amount associated with every state and they say, okay, sales will go up this much on the initial purchase and then every year after that we're going to see this much this many dollars come out of iowa it's not us we're not the people saying oh, crossbows we want crossbows it's somebody else from a different state doing it okay can i tell you something that's i i don't want to burst your bubble but it gives me i, I i'm glad you're optimistic on this yep. so we had the same thing in minnesota where we got i think it was 60 60 years old plus was the first wave and then maybe kids or maybe it all happened together and it, it happens in this incremental creep just like you guys have going on. Yep. And I thought, I mean, I knew it would, it, it would come eventually in Minnesota, but I thought there would be more opposition from the average bow hunter. Like I thought there would be, I thought a lot of people would be like, no way. Yeah. How quickly the average hunter adopts that weapon oh, is yeah wild so yep. there's like a i know this sucks like from your position but there's like a silent will of like i want easier and i, oh, I mean absolutely. i'm you, dude i absolutely. i saw people who i've hunted you know like not necessarily hunted with but known like guys who hunt the farm i hunt or whatever like i could not believe how many people i knew switched this year because it was legal i mean it's just yep. I was kind of living in this world where I was like, you know, my kids shoot them, whatever, but they don't interest me at all. Like, I don't, like, I don't care about them hardly at all. Like, they don't, it's not, like, really in my purview. Like, I don't care. Yeah. But I was just shocked because I kind of was living in my bubble how many people wanted that or how many people, as soon as it was available, were like, I'm going to that. Yeah. And they'll never go back, yeah. you know? Yep. I, I understand. It's crazy. I understand. I don't know, man. I'm just of the mindset. We have such a good thing going here. Why, why ruin it? Yeah. All right. Because instantly what's going to happen is you're going to have more hunters in the woods, more hunters equal more deer shot, more deer shot. At some point you're, you're, whether they start to take more of the upper age class, then it goes from, Hey, every year, my, this farm in this area has produced a, a four or five, you know, four, let's say five-year-old. Well, now, now I haven't had a four-year-old for a couple of years. Well, now I haven't had a four-year-old for a couple of years or a five-year-old for a couple of years. Now I haven't had a four-year-old for any next thing you know. It's just that that cream of the crop starts to go down a little bit. And then what we have is not as special as, as we, we think we have. Well, and it, I mean, it, the amazing thing about Iowa is how many buck tags they managed to give to residents and keep that quality. And that's mm -hmm. where it'll that's where it'll come in. Like when they, when they legalized in Wisconsin, which was a few years back now, 
uh, Wisconsin does a pretty good job of tracking harvest by county because that's kind of how they manage. Same here. In the county that I was in, and you know, you know, Wisconsin has a lot of hunters, right? Two hundred thousand bow hunters, six hundred thousand gun hunters, but it's a two buck state. Shoot one with archery, shoot one with gun, and previous to the crossbow legalization, you had to use a vertical bow. So there wasn't, you know, they, there was a consistent crossover, right? Like mm-hmm. there's certain people that do both, but a lot of people didn't. Yeah. Then you, then you give them that weapon and the County that I hunt in, it only took a couple of years before the buck harvest from archery. So bows and crossbows eclipsed the rifle harvest. Yeah. So when you talk when you talk to some people like some states haven't seen like a huge impact on the resource the kill has stayed somewhat similar but it's entirely dependent on how many tags are you handing out like yeah. now is this an extra buck that can be killed or not you know like in in Minnesota Minnesota is essentially a one buck state unless you hunt the CWD zone in in a couple places and so really if you go shoot a buck with a bow in most of the state that's your buck mm-hmm. you know you can go party hunt and whatever that's a different story but the impact on the overall harvest here won't be as great as a state like iowa or wisconsin where it's like you every resident can kill two bucks or three if you own land or whatever yep and so that's that's where you start seeing not not only maybe the quality you're talking about just attrition to opportunity yep. because the resource is getting impacted yep and I, I talked with my buddy Byron Horton. He is a uh, he lives in Ohio, or hunts Ohio, and he was talking about he was looking at some statistics, and it's like seven out of every ten deer shot during archery season are with a crossbow or so, something like that, right? And so, so it, it just when that when that uh, switch gets flipped, it gets flipped hard, and it just whoop like. Yeah. Whoop. And I'll be completely honest with you, man. I, I 100% support the disability, the people who are disabled, um, kids, right? Elderly people to keep buying their tags and, and getting all that stuff. Yes, absolutely. D- shit, there was a period of time this year with my shoulder that I thought I was going to have to go get a crossbow and get, you know, to be able to shoot. But because I'm a man, uh, 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 <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I won't go there. <laughs> No, I just toughed it out. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. Like, I've just been think, really thinking a, a, a lot about that to the point where it's like, am I being a dick because I have these opinions and, and, and thinking about this and, and express that? Or is what is my thought or my thoughts valid? Well, I mean, it's a it's a valid concern. I just think. I don't know, man. I, I'm so torn on this. Like, you know, my kids, I would not have been able to hunt the last couple of years for deer with my kids if crossbows weren't legal for mm-hmm. them. Yep. Like, and and so I'm like, I'm, I'm really kind of a walking contradiction because I don't have any interest hunting with them personally. Right. But it has been so fun to hunt with my daughters that way. And I just, I look at this stuff and I go, so it, when you talk about, you know, when, when Byron's talking about his experience in Ohio and it's a 70% kill rate, Minnesota went went legal this year. And in the first like four weeks, 40% of the archery harvest was crossbows already. Yeah. So in one or two more seasons, we'll be at that major majority, right? It'll be 70, 80%. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, I hunt, like I hunted Oklahoma this year 
Oklahoma's had legal crossbows for a long, long time. I probably saw 15 or 20 hunters out there in my time scouting and hunting. Yeah. I saw two people, two other guys, not in my little group, carrying vertical bows. The rest had crossbows, but I also saw how they hunted because mm-hmm. I found stands and blinds and I, I actually saw people out hunting while I was hunting. And let me tell you something that crossbows do to people is they start to hunt like gun hunters. And I'm, I'm totally ah. stereotyping and generalizing here. I know not yeah. everybody does this, but when you have a, a weapon you can shoulder and it has a scope on it and you don't have to practice a whole lot with them because they're super accurate. The amount of people I saw go sit on the ground like they're turkey hunting with a shotgun, mm-hmm. you know, like pop up their little tripod or whatever on the edge of a field and like super obviously visible. I was like, man, I don't know how much of an impact these people are having on a resource. So I don't know if it levels off a little bit over time where people are like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to crossbow hunt the same methods that I bow hunt, right? Like you right. I don't think you're going to see a ton of people in a saddle up in a tree with a crossbow. Like you'd see some for sure, but I think it gives people a false sense of like, I can walk around and shoot one or I, I don't have to put the work in. But the reality is it's still a pretty close range weapon for most people. Yeah. And if you, if you hunt like a, uh, you know, kind of like the average gun hunter and you're like, I'm just going to go out and put my back to a tree. You're not like a huge threat to a lot of the yeah. the deer, you know? So I don't know, I don't know where you land on that. Like, I don't know if there's actually like a, an impact to that eventually kind of leaning into that hunting style or not, or if it's just my bias from what I've seen, like on public land in certain States. Yeah, man. I don't know. I just feel it's crazy. Like it's crazy how the mind works. And, and cause I, I find myself thinking about this in just about all aspects of life. I mean, when I'm at the grocery store or whether I'm listening to whether it's the local news or, you know, CNN versus Fox or, or whatever, whatever name something. And I am a lot of the times I'm just like, oh, this is what I, this is what I like. This is what I do. I don't give a shit that, you know, those people screw them. Right. And so I'm trying really hard as I get older to be less like that. But there are certain things, especially where I'm just like dead set. Like I'm dead set in Iowa that I do not want non-resident landowners to have landowners uh, tags every year. Right. They can go through the same thing as us. I, I'm dead set on that. I don't like that. I'm dead set on crossbows not being allowed in the archery season, except with that little asterisk that we've talked about and things like that. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to be more, Hey, walk a mile in that dude's shoes type of attitude. And it's sometimes it's really hard, man. Yeah. I mean the, the non-resident landowner thing, that kind of stuff. I, I, I feel the same way as you do where I look at it and I go when it's, when it's structured, so big money can always play yep. and everybody else can't. That's when I get real nervous about it. If it's, I'm, I'm not as, I'm not as hard line crossbow as you are. Like, I just don't, I, we, I was at bow hunter magazine when this was coming out, like yep. this was starting to hit hard and we fought that for a while. And I just was looking at the, you know, 
all the bow companies started making not all of them but most of them started making crossbows and it was just like you could just see it coming and i was like i'm i'm tired of fighting it just like the cwd thing i was like i just got burned out on these issues but anytime that something comes up where it's like if you have the money this is what pisses me off so much about so much western hunting right now like new mexico right if you can afford one of those landowner tags you can hunt primo shit in new mexico every year and if you're just a random dude applying like it's just such a different it's it's anytime we allow like big money to dictate that kind of stuff it tends to really exclude a lot of people right and so if you look at like your example in iowa of a non-resident buying whatever 40 acres or whatever the minimum would have to be to get that tag i don't know what it is okay four acres four acres yep you could go buy the most worthless four acres of swamp off your brother-in-law's cousin somewhere, and now you're now you're hunting there every year, and that's going to change now. And then you're going to find, you know, resident landowners who are like, "I'm going to auction off every four acres of," the, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, as soon as it's like a real money grab on this on this public resource, which is the whitetail. Then I'm just like, ah, oh, man, it, it doesn't it doesn't make me feel good. Those yeah. things. Can I ask you? Is that why you tend? Because in a way, I feel it's connected. Is that why you tend to just go to public a lot and not deal? I know you have some private spots, but is that why you tend to just kind of go to, go to public? There, partially. Yeah. Right. I I mean, I. Part of it is I just genuinely love the challenge and I love not having to play by anyone else's rules. So like if I have permission based stuff, which I do, and if I have buddies who have land or whatever, like I'm, I'm super grateful for those opportunities. But like when I, when I went to that public land in Minnesota last weekend, when I was muzzleloader hunting, I walk in there and okay, I don't have a doe tag, so I'm hunting a buck and I can hunt any buck I want. Nobody, nobody can say a thing, right? People could shit on it if I shot a spike or whatever. I don't care. But I walk out there and I go, this is just my hunt. I have to figure this out. I have to do this. If I want to hold out for a big one, great. If I want to shoot a little one, great. But I just, I like the freedom of just like, I can do this and everyone else can. Right. And in the other aspect of it is, I mean, a main reason I started hunting public land so hard was because I was a starving freelancer right after the housing market crashed and all of us got laid off from where we worked. Yeah. And I was like, I want to relate to people. Like if people are going to pay me for advice and I was doing the speaking circuit, I'm like, it's just more relatable. If I, if I, if I could go hunt a badass place Mm -hmm. and I decide I'm going to go hunt public land, that experience is just for me as like a communicator is just different. So, yeah. And and, and, dude, and another part of it is just ego. Like it's, it's important to me to kill deer on public land and show that I can. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just like that feeling, you know. Yeah. Why do you think? And I, I think people who hunt high, high, highly managed, you know, box blind over food plot type style hunting, right? I, I'm, I'm guessing they might agree with what I'm about to say, but why is it when we start to tell a story? about hunting an animal there's like trump cards that can be thrown right like if i if i tell a story 
and then I say I shot this animal with a, a gun, that story doesn't seem to be as cool as if I said, hey, I shot this with a bow. Or, hey, I shot this on public versus private. Why do you think people uh, get more excited about these stories one way or the other? Because we are inherently aware of our advantages. Mm -hmm. We are inherently aware of the things that we do that make things easier. Yep. And, and we're also mostly just insecure about ourselves. <laughs> I mean, I, on, I'm being totally honest. I, dude, I, I'm so, laughing because I can agree with you. I agree with you. We, we want to sound badass, right? Right. Like it's, uh, let me, I'll, I'll give you an example. So I, I played in the bird dog world and the dog training world for a long time. I have a ton of friends who are like amazing trainers and I just, I love that world. Mm -hmm. And if you look at somebody who's been training 30, 40 years and has been there, done that, like just, they know their stuff. When you talk to them, there's like no projection of ego. They're just like, well, I do this when the dog does this, or if that dog is this way, I do yeah. this. And it's just like a very calm, confident demeanor in a lot of those people. And then you take the 30-year-old who's trying to build a reputation for his kennel and his training and his YouTube channel. And, you know, he sees the the old guard kind of has it made in a lot of ways. There's like a, there's like just this natural tendency to make yourself sound like you have a better system or you have a better strategy or you're doing something the hard way and they're not. Right. Like, oh, they have trainers working for them to do their bird and gun introduction or what, like shit like that. And it's all the same thing. It's an insecurity thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it, I mean, honestly, it's it's so weird to me I that we do this to such an extent because it's like if you if you have a badass place to hunt and you put a redneck blind up over your food plot, whatever, and you kill a buck, great. Like who cares? Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. who like great, you know? Or if you go out and you grind it out on public land with a recurve and you kill one, great. Like oh. It's it's weird that we are the way that we are with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know, man. But, but I, even even consumer like I I can get the point about insecurities telling the story, right? But even people who are not hunters, let's say, you tell a story to someone who maybe they know what a gun they they know what a gun is. They know how close you have to be for a, a bow, all right? Even people who don't hunt, who I would say have no investment in hunting, they, like I've told stories to some of my uh, wife's friends and then I they said, okay, so, I mean, how far away was he when you shot him with your gun? I'm like, oh no, I was 20 yards and I shot him with a bow and I had to climb up in a tree and I had to knock all these thorns off the tree and you get into the story and they, they're blown away by those and then when i go when i t uh, tell the same stories about let's say a turkey hunt which i know is a completely different animal but i was on the ground i called him in and i shot him with a shotgun in his face oh okay there's no there, there's a completely different reaction from these people than i don't know man it, it, so i'm a like here here's here's i don't hunt a ton of public land unless i go out west to hunt like mule deer or whatever. When I'm out out of state, it's it's uh, public land. But in Iowa, I'm a product of my environment. I hunt a lot of uh, private. Here's the deal. I still think the public land bow hunter has the trump card 
over everybody when it comes to when it comes to stories, man. Well, I mean, because we inherently know that it's more difficult. Yep. Right. I mean, yep. it's just the the thing. Part of the reason that we do this, and part of the reason that we're so confused about this, is for so long we were fed content from the hunting industry that came from one place yep and it was very a very privileged place where they didn't have to work that hard generally to kill big shit yeah and we just saw big stuff and we elevated those people and then somewhere along the line people got really sick of it because they go you, you know when you watch a video and you see 50 60 deer pour into a food plot and they're shooting a buck that's 180 inches that they've watched for six years. Mm-hmm. Most people are like, I've never seen a buck anywhere near that size in my entire life. And it we, so there's like this movement where you're like, okay, well, they have it. They have a different thing. Why are they pretending they're like me? And it, there's like this division to it. And that created this opening for people to come in. And so we've kind of conflated all this stuff. And now we have all these qualifiers on it. Because yeah. we've, all, we've all been exposed to these various levels of hunts and you and i know it the audience knows it and so if you're if you're making content and trying to make a name for yourself you want to make it look like you're doing things the hard way yeah as as hard as possible and i don't care what anybody says you see this stuff trickle down to the average hunter i mean look at look at how often you'll see somebody who's like you know they're hunting 40 acres here or there or whatever and they're they're posting a pic, trail camera picture of a 140 inch buck and it's like you know he's too young he's not mature yet i'm going to let him go another season like they're hunting a thousand acres of you yeah. know primo ground in southern iowa yeah this shit trickles down mm-hmm. and so it's like it's it's just pervasive these these things we do and it that i mean that's part of the reason like when you ask me why i hunt public land Part of the reason I do that is because I've always been sort of like a counterculture guy. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I grew up in a little dairy farming community where everyone I knew listened to country music and I was listening to Tool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I've yeah. always just been a little different. And yeah. I and I like I like that. I, I like just trying things that are different and, and showing people, like, there's more options out here than following this formula that comes from somebody who has a very curated hunting experience. Because right. you're probably not going to get that. Right. That's a great point. I'm going to switch topics up here uh, just a minute. In Iowa, leading up, you know, we had most of the Midwest was under some kind of drought this last uh, this last summer. Uh, and, and even multiple summers in a row now. We're, we're, and you start to hear rumblings of EHD. This summer, this summer wasn't too bad. I didn't hear a ton. Um, I didn't hear a ton even leading into September, but now I'm starting to see or hear rumblings, especially in Southeast Iowa of major EHD damage. Uh, have you heard any rumblings in from the people that you've been talking to in any other States? Um, I actually have heard about some of the, the Eastern Iowa stuff. Mm -hmm. I've got, I've got a buddy who lives down there and man, EHD sucks. Yeah. I've, I've, I've experienced it in the Dakotas a few times and some of the places I like to hunt and man, it is, it can be real bad. Yeah. Yeah, man. You, you hear the stories. I mean, in 2012, I believe, I believe it was 2008. And then again, in 2012, certain properties, especially if you had a crick 
running through your property or if you had a uh, a pond, mostly ponds, because, yep. you know, there's no running water there. You, they were hit pretty hard in eight and then again in 12. And now the last couple of years, uh, I mean, you start to hear and then you hear the DNR. You, you say, OK, the DNR says that for every amount, let's, let's say you fi- find 10 dead deer on your property. It probably means that there is a hundred dead deer in the area that have died. So the, what's reported is only 10%. And so now you start to put that at scale and it just, man, it, it can hit, it hit hard. And I'll say this about some of the properties that I've hunted. I haven't experienced EHD. I found some dead deer. I'm assuming it's from shotgun season. Uh, I did find one deadhead shed hunting one year that still had velvet on it. I'm not 100% sure. Could have been. Could have been EHD. But where where you hunt, have you ever experienced that personally? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, you know, and EHD is weird because it's, it's highly localized. Yep. You know, where it's going to happen. Like you said, if you've got a stream running through there, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Or you're moving water or big enough water. It's like a... It takes a specific set of circumstances, and when it happens, it's highly localized, and it sucks bad. Yeah. Like I, uh, the first time I really ran into it, I was it was back when I was hunting South Dakota a lot, and I I ended up, you know, I used to go out scout for a few days, then hunt for a few days, whatever. And I ran into some locals one time, and they were like, "You're wasting your time here." EHD came through, and I had already found because I was hunting ponds, I had already found dead bucks. Mm-hmm. and so I knew. But you know, they were like, "It's not even worth hunting," and I'm like, you know. Like I've never, I don't know if I've ever had a South Dakota resident tell me the truth about hunting. So whatever. <laughs> uh, but I was like, I was like, man, there's still deer, like plenty of deer around. Yeah. But it's all about like, where where does your level of expectation like normalize? Right. When you when you think about it, if you're used to a ton of deer, and EHD comes through, you're going to be hunting a a way lower density but it still might not be that bad. It, it might really impact the, the amount of mature bucks you have for the next several years, which is, is pretty likely. Yeah. But again, it's like sort of this doomsday scenario. And then when you get out in it, because I, I, I spent quite a bit of time hunting South Dakota and North Dakota when EHD raged through in different spots. It changed the landscape, but the hunting, there was still hunting to be had. Right. You know what I mean? It, it's yeah. kind of like when people, you know, we, we deal with wolves up here and we've got wolves in Wisconsin. And if you talk to the average rifle hunter, they're going to tell you that the wolves ate all the deer and it's no bueno. And they, yeah. they do have a big impact, believe me. But it's not like you don't have some opportunities. And it, the thing that we do with that stuff is we go, the hunt I want is gone. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I want to go sit on my ladder stand that I always sit for a rifle on the clear cut and, and shoot a deer. And now the wolves came in. Like, you might have to reset. Like, you might have to go find them. Same thing with EHD. It might not, you might not get delivered the hunt you want. Right. But you can go find one that's going to be pretty good probably. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man, that EHD, that CWD, all that shit, it's crazy, man. I I, I don't know. But yet nature survives. Right. And I'm just assuming thousands of years of evolution and things like that. You would think that there'd be less impact by these things because deer eventually genetically like there's going to certain certain genetics in a deer make them 
less susceptible to EHD or CWD, or you would you would think that. Do you, do you know why I don't think that? Why not? Because ninety nine percent of the species that have ever been alive on Earth are extinct. Yeah, and you you know what I mean. I I know that argument, and I, I don't know if they've ever. I know that they were looking into that with CWD, if there were CWD resistant deer, if there was some kind of genetic component to it. And you would you would think that would happen. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. Like, I, I don't have that much faith that that's like the few, like we're gonna have super deer that aren't susceptible to it, you know? I mean, maybe, but yeah, I don't. I gotcha. Uh, let's see here. Your, your rut, right? Every time I talk to someone, slow rut, shitty rut, blah, blah, blah. You know, everybody's mad because of the rut. Talk talk about your rut specifically, and then maybe broaden it to what you have, man, like what you've seen throughout the years as far as trends when it comes to the rut. I think that we self-sabotage around the rut in a way that we are not aware of. Mm-hmm. I, I think generally a lot of people look at, I mean, if you look at Minnesota's gun harvest, so our gun season opened on November 4th this year. Yep. And it was hot, like yep. unseasonably warm, generally throughout the whole thing. And our harvest is way down and people will look at that and they go, well, the deer weren't moving, but we also know that hunter effort goes way down when they believe the conditions aren't conducive to a good hunt. Fact. I had, I mean, I, I hunted North Dakota and then Wisconsin with my daughter and then Wisconsin for myself primarily were my rut hunts. I had a blast. I didn't see a lot of deer, you know, like I had, in fact, I had two all day sits in a row, one in North Dakota and one in Wisconsin with my daughter where we sat all day. And the first deer we saw was like 20 minutes before dark and we killed them. Right. So, you know what I mean? And I think that. I think people don't understand the rut, like yeah. rut hunting. Like I think we get so consumed with the idea that it's going to be a chase fest and it's going to be amazing. And it's so often not right. Like we, you get those moments where it's badass, or you get a little bit more of just like, Oh, that deer cruised through at 11 o'clock, like to keep your hopes up. But there, there's so many places where you're hunting, like where I hunt in Wisconsin, the deer numbers got smoked last year in the yeah. winter. Like it's, it's freaking bad. I hunted, I hunted 21 or 22 days over there between myself and my daughters, and I saw five deer. Wow. I saw, it took me 20 days to see a doe. So because we, of winter we were, kill. Largely. I mean, we have, we have a huge predator population up there. The winter, the winter did not do them any favors last year. It was way worse on them than I thought. Whatever. But even then, we killed two bucks decoying them. Yep. They were the only two bucks we saw. You know, they were like, holy shit, there's a doe there. I'm going to go sniff her butt. Like, you could see them like, oh, my God, you know. Mm-hmm. But even in that situation where it's like, you know, you're working with so few deer, they're still out there covering ground. It's just a matter of time in stand. And it's a matter of just like, get get out of your head that you're going to have these awesome sits all the time. Or, you know, if you go out and you blank or you go have something that just doesn't work out, that's just how it goes. Like, yeah. you're still deer hunting. Yeah. I think I've kind of changed my tune when it comes to the rut, right? Like I love, I love the rut, man. It's fun sitting in a tree and watch all these deer go bananas for a couple, couple days. But really, I don't care. I, I don't want, like my goal is to be tagged out 
before the, the I guess you want to call it the lockdown phase. Like I, I want to be tagged out and I would have been tagged out this year if I didn't make a shitty shot. So I had to, you know, regroup, go back out. And then I caught a buck I'm who I'm assuming had already bred a doe and was now cruising. Okay. And so I don't, I like the rut, but I, I don't like to hunt the the lockdown phase because i'm i'm not joking on my farm that i hunt was hunting this year it was the pre-rut was absolutely amazing deer moving all over bucks just getting downwind of does and checking them going in bedding areas checking out stepping out in daylight you know there's some somewhere around the 27th of october it was just money all the way until the 7th the seventh hit, and it was literally on my cell cams and, and my trail cameras, light switch off. And it just, I t- does and young bucks, yes, but all the doe groups were breaking apart. The, the you know, one it's like one doe at a time would leave, a buck would leave, and I wouldn't see him for like four or five days. And then they'd come back, one, you know, like I'd catch something on a scrape or something. And I don't know, man, it, it, I, I just... I like I like the rut from a it's fun it's November let's go this is when I can hunt but from a strategy standpoint and like I did I think in the future I might do out of state hunts in that second week in November uh just because of that lockdown phase and it's just like it's they're so hard to there's even in Iowa they're so hard to find or pattern or get within shooting range because usually there's more than just one deer involved at that point. And it's yeah. a doe or in a doe or a fawn and a buck coming and pestering them. And, and then there's just more eyes and more problems and things like that. I, I like what happened to me this year where it was the only deer I saw that night was the shooter buck that I ended up shooting and he came out, I shot him it was over. Right. And so I like that better than seeing 50, 60 deer, but not getting a shot. Yeah. I mean, dude, I, I, you know, I've been talking to Mark about this a lot too. Those last couple of days of October, or even the last week of October is I, I, ha- I consistently have more fun hunting then yeah. than I do in November. Right. It's just, it's a different thing. Like they're, they're so much more predictable. Like you, you kind of take out a lot of the wild cards where they're just leaving and going somewhere else. Yeah. And man, that time frame is pretty fun. Yeah. What about what are your thoughts? You know, everybody talks about the rut being a bell curve, right? And so we've both said now here we really prefer this pre-rut time frame. And I look at this bell curve where things kind of start to go back to normal, but there's still breeding happening and still rut action happening. Do you think that the the bucks are susceptible to being called post-rut as they are pre-rut? I have no idea. I don't know if I've ever called to a buck post rut, to yeah. be honest with you. Like, I don't, I mean, I, I, I'm curious about that. Mm-hmm. And, and and the reason I'm curious about that. So this, this year was the first year uh, that I've ever owned a Dave Smith decoy, right? And Meteor yep. owns them. So whatever, take that for what it's worth. But they sent me a doe. Okay. And I told my daughter and when we were going to Wisconsin, cause she still had a buck tag left. I'm like, we are going to put this sucker out. And we are just going to wait for a buck to lay eyes on it. And we are not going to hardly see any, but when they do, I think they're going to come in. And 
the response we got out of the two times we did it was the best responses I've ever had out of decoys. And I think it was because there's a limited amount of deer there and they were like, there's my shot. And so I wonder when you get, you know, pretty late into November and you're past a lot of the peak stuff and they're like, can I pick up one more? I wonder if the rarity of finding a doe in estrus or an amenable doe is like, would, would produce better results from calling. Like yeah. would produce like better results from sense or some of this stuff. I don't really know, but it seems like kind of academically, like it might be true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I personally, I mean, I just, all my, all my good calling stories and experience come from the, the late October, early November, like the first week of November timeframe, that pre-rut timeframe, all my calling is done there. And it's hard for me to give because most of the time I'm tagged out, at least for the last 10 years, I've, or not 10, to, uh, since 2016, I've been tagged out. Uh, I've only had two times I've gone into the teens in November in that time frame. It's either been the fourth or the sixth or the seventh or even the third uh, on, on those dates. You know, I've never shot a buck in October. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do because I stack all my chips into that, you know, that other time frame. I take that back. I shot a deer in South Dakota in October, but that's, I don't count that because it's not Iowa. That was, that you know, that was just like, it's different, different style of hunting out there, you know? So, well, I mean, part of the reason that that happened is because you're not going to be out of state in November. Yeah, exactly. When, you, when, when you're an Iowa resident. Exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a different deal for me, you know, growing up in Minnesota, I have killed a pile of bucks in October right because you don't have November to count on yeah okay I, I gotta ask you you know about you know I've talked about the muzzle coming out to you about muzzle loader uh, buying a muzzle loader Iowa has an early season muzzle loader that tends to lay right in that quote unquote law low, low, low no movement period and then you got the late season muzzle loader which is three three weeks as opposed to one week if you had to choose would you rather take a muzzle loader and hunt an early an early season, mid October time frame, or would you rather hunt a late season, you know, mid to late December, early January time frame? If my if my goal from from my experience, if my goal was to kill a decent buck, mm-hmm. I would pick the October. Yeah. I but I I don't have I've never had like a bang in late season spot. Yeah, where you know where they're all coming yeah. kind of thing. So I mean, if I had that, obviously you'd choose those three weeks late season because you're going to get those deer real grouped up. Yeah. But in my experience, I like mid October, man. Like I think, I think it gets a bad rep, and it's just it's a lot better than people think. It's just not, it's just not an easy field edge time to hunt for a lot of people. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's a different kind of hunt. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, Mr. Peterson. We're coming up here on an hour, so I appreciate you uh, coming on, BSing with me, uh, let, letting me uh, voice my opinions and come out to you like we've already talked about. It feels good. It feels real good. <laughs> Weight off my chest. And you, so, have, you have a glow about you now. I know, I can, right? I can see a change. Right. Yeah. It's probably high blood pressure. but. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate you taking time to do this, man. Have a good day. Thanks, buddy. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode 
of the Nine Finger Chronicles has been put into Fort Knox for the rest of eternity. Huge shout out to Tethered, Wasp, Vortex, Code Blue, Woodman's Pal, Huntworth, and Full Sneak Gear. Please go out and support the companies that support this uh, podcast. Let them, if you do decide to purchase, use one of the discount codes. Uh, let them know that you heard it on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. And uh, man, uh, good vibes, right? I'm trying to send good vibes out to all of you. Uh, good luck the rest of the season. If you're going to be in a tree, wear your damn safety harness or saddle. And uh, good luck to you all. And we'll talk to you on Wednesday. Thank you.